Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're in our seventh episode, week seven, 2021. Today at 11 a.m. Eastern, the Subcommittee on Communications and Technology of the Energy and Commerce Committee will be holding a hearing entitled Connecting America, Broadband Solutions to the Pandemic Problems. On Friday, we sent a letter to Chairman Plum that outlined the following priorities for their committee. First, um, accelerate deployment of fiber broadband infrastructure to close the digital divide and build resilience against existential threats such as pandemics. Second, 5G depends on fiber infrastructure as communities without fiber will fall on the wrong side of the digital divide. And lastly, we must build sustainable networks so that not only meet the needs of today, but will deliver the capacity of demand into the future. You know, yesterday we saw Energy and Commerce Republicans release 28 bills that will promote new infrastructure development, promote deployment, competition, and consumer choice through coalition and modifications to existing infrastructure, remove unnecessary or duplicative environmental and historically or historical preservation barriers, and promote broadband deployment on federal lands. So we're definitely seeing um, strong positive activity on the Hill at key agencies such as FCC and NTIA and in the market. But speaking of positive outcomes, I'm excited about today's fiber breakfast session. We'll be discussing how Chattanooga's fiber project delivered 2.7 billion in economic impact. But before I formally introduce our guests, I'd like to introduce uh, Trish Ehlers from our team who will walk us through some housekeeping items. Thank you, Gary, and good morning to everyone who's joined us today. I'm going to quickly go over a few logistical items. Uh, As you're listening today, please keep in mind that everyone is in listen-only mode. If you'd like to ask a question, please type it into the question box located within your control panel on the right side of your screen. Uh, We'll have time for a Q&A session toward the end. The presentation is being recorded and will be available to members on the FBA's website within 24 hours. You can find the recording in the events tab under the Fiber for Breakfast drop-down option. At the conclusion of the presentation, you'll be prompted to complete a brief feedback survey. Uh, Please do so. We appreciate your input. I'll pass it back to Gary now to introduce our panelists and get us started. Thanks, Trish. And again, good morning and welcome, everyone. I'm Gary Bolton, the president and CEO of the Fiber Broadband Association. And today we'll be discussing how Chattanooga's fiber project delivered $2.7 billion in economic impact. Joining us today is Dr. Bento Lobo, professor of the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga, and Jim Ingram, vice president of strategic research at EPB. Dr. Lobo is the first Tennessee bank distinguished professor of finance and has completed a number of economic development studies for the Fiber Broadband Association. Bento has a a bachelor's in economics from St. Xavier's College, a master's in finance from the University of Mumbai, 
and a PhD in Financial Economics from the University of New Orleans. Also joining us this morning is Jim Ingram of EPB, the Electric Power Board of Chattanooga, which delivered one of the first gigabit cities in the world, now a 10 gig city. At EPB, Jim is responsible for electric utility and broadband communications service, strategic market research, and data modeling relevant to electric rates, service deployment, business strategy, business planning, um, public policy, grant development, and business intelligence research. So welcome, Professor Lobo and Jim. You know, Chattanooga has been held up as a shining example of how fiber can transform a community become world-class on so many dimensions. I'm anxious to hear the details of the positive economic impact that EPB's leadership has had on your community. You know, for our audience, you know, please type in your questions as we go for a Q&A at the conclusion of the presentation. So with that, over to you, Bento and Jim. Thank you, Gary. First of all, let me say uh, good morning to everybody at the Fiber Broadband Association. Very pleased to be here with all of you this morning. Uh, I hope it's a little warmer where you are than it is in Chattanooga this morning because it's about 21 degrees here right now and it's kind of chilly. Uh, but that is good for an electric company when the electric electricity is on and it's on and we're very proud of that. So is the broadband. So, you know, this morning we're going to talk about the economic impact studies that we've worked with Dr. Lobo on really over the last 10 years. And, you know, let me just start out this morning by saying, you know, why did we engage Dr. Lobo in doing this work for us? Um, Katie Espiseth, my, my colleague and good friend here at EPB, she and I worked on the business plan to build the fiber system here at EPB together. We're all very proud of the role that Katie plays with the Fiber Broadband Association, by the way. But we, Katie actually made the connection with Dr. Lobo, and we made that connection because we wanted to be able to explain to our community when we were, we were considering a $196 million capital investment at that time, we wanted to be able to explain who would benefit from that investment. And we weren't looking at a typical return on investment kind of calculation where there were a set of traditional investors who were going to benefit from it. We were, you know, hopeful that the community would benefit. Um, and we wanted to quantify that. And Bento Lobo, Dr. Lobo and his team brought the implant model to us. And I'll let Bento explain all of that. But it basically gave us a way to say to the community that over the next 10 years, this is what we expect the, the forecast benefits could be based on a straight fact-based financial calculation based on the time value of money. And um, so we have done those studies and the study that Bento will tell you about this morning is really uh, comparing the original forecast that we did in 2006 to the 10-year outcomes that we've been able to document up to this point in time that give us that $2.7 billion number. Um, before I turn it over to Bento, let me just say that when we look at, you know, these kinds of investments at EPB, we look at it very much from the perspective of how are the customers that we serve, the community that we serve, how are they going to benefit from this? Will they be able to see those benefits? When EPB entered into a, a project to borrow that kind of money, we had no debt. We had zero. 
And so it was a very big deal for our board of directors, our CEO, the city council, the county commission, the people who are stakeholders in our company to agree to let us go out what actually turned into a $350 million investment over time. We knew we had to build it and it had to work. We knew we had to connect and disconnect customers, troubleshoot and send an accurate bill. And that had to work. And we knew that we we're gonna go out and have to convince our community to take our service. It was the best path for us to modernize a six, at that time, 70 year old electric system that had not been modernized literally since it was built and opened for business in 1939. And we did that by building the fiber to the home network. And we think the benefits speak for themselves. So with that, I will turn it over to my friend, Dr. Bento Lobo, to tell you about the study. Thank you, Jim. And uh, thank you, uh, Gary, for inviting me to this, uh, this forum. I appreciate it very much. And uh, I uh, will build a little bit on what Jim said uh, earlier. Some of our, uh, the first study I did for uh, the community was way back in 2006. At the time, the fiber infrastructure was being thought of or planned, uh, you know, uh, early days. And uh, uh, we came up with some estimates. Uh, you know, from your own work experience, you know that even what 14 years ago 15 years ago uh, there's been so much progress made in that short span of time but in 2006 there really was not a literature out there to to go into uh, there was a lot of blind spots and so uh, we had to create from scratch in a sense some estimates of what uh, this would look like you know if we put fiber in the ground what where would those effects show up where were the value pockets where were, you know what could be uh, expect to find. And so uh, I'm really, uh, you know, happy with some of that work we did way back because it helped build the literature in this area as well. Uh, as Jim pointed out, uh, we used an implant model at that time, which is basically a an input-output model. In other words, it's a big macroeconomic model, which says if I helicopter drop X number of dollars into a footprint uh, in a particular sector of the economy, what uh, what spread out effects does it have? What multiplier effects does it have in terms of income and jobs and taxes and so on? And so, you know, we use that as a benchmark to, to get some baseline estimates of what the effect would be of dropping 196 million or $200 million into uh, this footprint. And then subsequently, we had to augment that with what we called uh, some social effects or indirect effects, things that the model was not capturing. Uh, and so, you know, with all those estimates, we came up with uh, a value that was somewhat less than uh, even a billion dollars. It was like a half a billion dollars is what we estimated the value to be. Uh, so subsequently, after the infrastructure was installed, uh, I did a five-year look back on what we call the realized value of the infrastructure that was in 2015. And this most recent study that I'm going to talk to you about is a 10-year look back. So the infrastructure was installed and operational by 2010-11, somewhere in that ballpark. And so the question now was, what have we actually realized? We, we, we projected that we were going to get X number of dollars of value and jobs, but how is that actually shaken out? So that's what I, I'm gonna to talk to you briefly about. So Trish, if you'd advance the slide just one. Uh, so here's a summary of our most recent study 
a 10-year look back of fiber optic infrastructure in Hamilton County and Chattanooga in particular. Uh, quick point of uh, uh, methodology, uh, methodological uh, order here. When I say fiber optic infrastructure, for me, it means two things, high-speed broadband and the smart grid. And so we, we were looking at those two features of fiber optic infrastructure in terms of where this effect would take place. And uh, now based on a fairly substantial literature, we, we broke down the study or the value pockets as we call them into five areas. Uh, and they are not mutually exclusive, they overlap, but for uh, analytical purposes, it helps to put them in these buckets, economic development, the smart grid, household effects, business effects and community effects. And so when we look at it from with that lens, uh, we can organize our thoughts a little bit better in terms of where to look for effects and what kind of effects and so on. So high level summary of our findings is that uh, over the past 10 years, we think that this infrastructure is responsible minimally for about $2.7 billion of value. Uh, and uh, that comes in a variety of different areas. Uh, the infrastructure, uh, this value exceeds the cost of putting up the project, uh, uh, compounded cost over 10 years uh, by a factor of 4.4. Uh, and so uh, it significantly uh, exceeds the cost of putting in uh, the infrastructure. Uh, much of the measured value we find stems from uh, economic development and the smart grid in our case. And uh, we attribute over 9,500 jobs to this infrastructure based on our methodology and our analysis. So that's the high level view. And I'll talk to you a little bit more about some of the specific areas of value. And I'll start with the smart grid. So Trish, if you'd, uh, the smart grid uh, is a peculiar benefit for us because this fiber optic infrastructure was put in place by EPB, the local utility, and uh, their primary uh, objective in doing so was to build out the smart grid. And so, uh, as it turns out, this is a significant value pocket for us here in, in the community. It accounts for about 28% of the total 2.7 value, uh, a billion dollar value that I talked to you about previously. Uh, the smart grid was built out and became fully operational in 2012. So really some of the estimates that are presented here for the smart grid are for a period of eight years or less in terms of what they have generated. The greatest benefits of the grid come from reducing the costs of major weather events, which mostly affect businesses and households in terms of lost productivity and economic activity, as you know. At an estimated cost of about $23 million per weather event, we find that uh, the smart grid generates significant value, $421 million in value from uh, a 56% reduction in outages due to the smart grid. Overall outage minutes were reduced by 43% and in excess of 2 million customer interruptions were avoided by the smart grid. Uh, these efficiencies due to automation resulted in annual cost savings in excess of $26 million. Uh, moreover, the reduced peak demand also results in uh, reducing carbon equivalent uh, emissions. And it has resulted in sharp improvements in the SADI metric that uh, utilities tend to track. 
and also reductions in power theft. So, uh, you know, I, I cannot under I cannot overstate the value of the smart grid here in town and the value that the fiber optic infrastructure has brought to the community through the smart grid. The other areas, and uh, Atrish, if you'd advance it one, uh, I, I'm going to talk to you a fairly high level about some of these other value pockets. So economic development uh, is, is a big deal in terms of how uh, this kind of infrastructure can impact a community. We find that superfast broadband adds to the allure of Chattanooga. Chattanooga already has the gig city moniker attached to it. It's also called the scenic city and it's also called freight alley and a variety of different things. But this gig city idea has really come to stick here with, with Chattanooga. And uh, what we found uh, just by the quick aside in terms of the methodology that I've been using is talking to a ton of people in town. Uh, real real estate developers, uh, economic development people, uh, businesses, and so on. And what we find is that uh, the infrastructure is a factor when people come to town, uh, bringing business investments, bringing real estate development, uh, new startups, especially bandwidth hungry types like the logistics firms, uh, Freightwaves is an example of them. Uh, and of course, the, ta the attendant taxes that come with it. So by our estimates, in excess of $1.4 billion can be attributed to broad economic development associated with the infrastructure, in, in addition to uh, in excess of 9,500 jobs that we attribute to it. Uh, the other value pockets, business effects, you know, uh, Efficiency gains that come from high bandwidth, uh, high-speed bandwidth and high-speed broadband uh, is mostly in terms of savings, in terms of time and personnel. And uh, this results in streamlined and automated process flows, fewer errors, economies of scale, and lower processing costs for firms. Uh, a recent study determined that Amazon might lose as much as $1.6 billion in sales from a one second delay in page loading time. Just to give you a sense of uh, how much bandwidth uh, matters. Uh, a study found that in the US, the loss of productivity due to slow upload download of digital content amounted to 4.9 days per employee per year. So what we did was we used a bandwidth calculator to find the time saved in downloading files of different sizes. And let's say a 12 gigabit file when using a gig speed internet connection versus a 25 megabits per second internet connection, which by the way is the FCC's current uh, benchmark for high-speed broadband. Uh, the time savings from using a gig versus 25 megabits per second was an hour and seven minutes when it came down to downloading a 12 gigabit size file. Uh, so the dollar cost savings shown in the first chart over here can be significant as much as $356 per employee per day uh, can be saved when moving from 25 megabits per second to 1,000 megabits per second or a gig. When it comes to household effects, we know that the internet impacts every aspect of our lives, right? It has revolutionized the way we communicate, learn, share information, watch TV, eat, shop, consume news, cook, read, do business, bank, and even the way we complain about things, right? So uh, there's so many ways in which the internet adds to our lives. 
uh, and uh, uh, the, there's not an easy way to capture all of that. And so what uh, uh, st uh, lit uh, researchers in the area tend to do is use a technique called the consumer surplus, right? So consumer surplus is a measure of what we are willing to pay for something relative to what we actually pay. And uh, when we uh, estimate consumer surplus for the community, uh, plus some residential cost savings, that come from lower utility bills, uh, we estimate that value to be in the neighborhood of around, over the study period, about $280 million. Community effects was the final bucket that we looked at, and uh, community effects are very wide ranging, right? From telehealth to education, telecommuting, civic services, and so on and so forth. And uh, it's just really hard to capture or measure, I should say, value in some of these pockets, which is why I think this is an ongoing area of study. And why, I, when I conclude my, my, this particular study, I say, you know, as new value pockets become uh, visible to us, uh, these estimates are actually going to grow uh, with the passage of time. Uh, just to give you a couple of examples, I mean, uh, a, a telehealth tracker uh, in the wake of the pandemic showed that uh, when the pandemic was escalating in April of 2020, telehealth claim lines increased over 8,000% nationally from 0.1% of medical claim lines in April 19 to 13% in April 2020. Uh, locally here, CHI Memorial, uh, one of our, our hospitals here said since reopening to elective procedures in early June, uh, some 40 to 50% of hospital operations remain virtual, right? So a lot of telehealth activity is going to be taking place going forward, even in the post-pandemic, if you want to call it, uh, period. Uh, uh, and so that's an area where uh, I was not able to fully capture the value, right? But I talk about it in the study, in the form of case studies and so on. The second chart in the slide pertains to a radiologist firm in town. And radiologists, as you know, are huge bandwidth consumers. And we found that a gig connection saves them a thousand hours a year, yeah, merely in upload and download speed, uh, uh, download time, right? And so if we multiply that out by all the radiologists in town and then other people who are using a bandwidth in different ways, you know, you have a significant chunk of, uh, uh, value there. Uh, other areas that we explore, telecommuting is fairly easy to capture and telecommuting is going to be a huge deal as you can imagine with working from home, uh, not only now, but also trends suggest that people, a much larger uh, segment of people are going to be working from home even in the post pandemic period. Virtual education, how do you put a value on that, right? The ability to uh, keep kids engaged and in school virtually due to, uh, you know, uh, low latency, high uh, speed bandwidth. Uh, civic services, so you talk to the police department here and they talked about the value of street cameras at, and being able to resolve crimes quicker because of that kind of video evidence which requires a, a great deal of symmetrical upload-download uh, transmission. Uh, locally, we have a, a 
the Center for Urban Informatics and Progress housed at the University of Tennessee. And they're doing fabulous work here, working with big data and trying to, one of their studies won an award for being able to predict accident frequencies in a certain uh, footprint and uh, the ability to reduce accidents uh, by taking some mitigating action. So uh, Trish, if you'd move on to the next slide. Uh, I, uh, no, one before this, thank you. Uh, I, I just want to highlight for you. I'd about to leave some time for questions. So maybe we can. Um, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, maybe I'll pause here then and take some questions, uh, but I'll, I'll, in, in which case you can move to the conclusion real quick and uh, the next slide, and I'll just highlight one point really quickly here. Uh, and that is uh, that, you know, fiber optic infrastructure is essential, you know. Uh, reliable, low latency, high-speed broadband and a smart grid are essential, and that's become blatantly clear, even more so during a pandemic. And I'll leave it there for you uh, and take any questions you may have. Thank you. Thanks, Bento. Yeah, and Jim, we've had we've had a bunch of questions here. Um, so there's a lot of questions, um, Jim, about the um, architecture for residential fiber of the premise. So, you know, are you guys using um, active Ethernet or is it point to point? I mean, um, you know, PON or what's your architecture? So it's a GPON network, um, and um, I mean, it, it it we were very patient in waiting for the GPON technology to perfect itself. Um, uh, to become cost-effective, it has worked extremely well for us. Uh, we've been very satisfied with the results of very elegant technology with few moving parts, and that makes it easier to maintain. It was a good decision. So one of the questions, uh, someone who actually grew up in Cleveland, Tennessee, uh, was asking, um, you know, what kind of pushback did you see from industry? I mean, obviously, when you guys embarked on this, it wasn't like it is today, where it wasn't quite the no-brainer. You know, so. Well, um, you know, one of the things we asked Bento in that first study back in 2006, we wanted to know what the value to the community was going to be, but uh, we knew that we were, you know, infringing on, uh, you know, at, at that time, Bell South, now AT&T and Comcast were the primary competitors in our community. Um, we wanted, we asked Bento to tell us what would be the cost to them uh for our entering the business and we did quantify that the the pushback we got was almost 100 percent legal and political um they went to the general assembly uh they went to the courts and tried to stop us uh through lawsuits and to get the political leadership to kind of uh you know to convince them not to approve our um investment plan um we went to the people and told them what we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it. And in our community, the reality was that for as long as anybody could remember, uh, you know, cable TV, telephone and internet service were getting more expensive every year and the service was getting worse. And we said, we'll build a new technology. We'll give you the same quality service you've been expecting from the electric system and we'll give you a better value. We didn't do deep discounts in our pricing. We actually priced our products just a little below what the incumbents were doing at that time. Of course, they came down below us and started off, and they tried to counter our moves with, um, um, you know, discount pricing. But it, it has, uh, you know, the quality of service, the quality of the technology have paid off. 
and then I know with the uh, what we call the Easter tornadoes, you had the area. You know, one of the questions is how can a smart grid impact a community where severe weather um, is prevalent? And if I mean, with Bento saying with 56 percent reductions in power outages, but you still have your share of tornadoes. Mm -hmm. Well, sure. And and look, when the weather when the weather tears tears down the poles, when the weather damages our substations, we have to go out there and rebuild it and fix it, right? That that storm uh, was the biggest in our history. It was a $35 million repair job. Um, and But here, here's the reality. We, we had 70,000 customers without electricity on Easter morning. Um, we would have had another 40,000 customers without it, without the smart grid, because what the smart grid does is it reroutes power automatically away from the problems. And it allows us to localize the problems, to know more about where the problems actually are, and that speeds our response time. So we were able to mobilize the resources and restore service, you know, really in less than 10 days, but most of our customers were back on within 48 hours. And that 48 hours is what's most important to most people because after that, the food starts going bad in your, in your freezer refrigerator. Great, and how many total customers do you have? We have about 190,000 electric customers and about 120,000 broadband customers. Bento, there had a question from a utility provider in Canada as wanted to know if, um, if your study, your methodology would work for their network in Canada. And do you... I, yeah, I think so, because my approach is very uh, grassroots level granular. So I try to talk to, uh, to people in the community to learn how they are using the bandwidth and so on. So that approach should work anywhere, right? Uh, I don't know if uh, the results from one place are, uh, you know, linearly comparable to something another place, but certainly the methodology, I think, would be the way to go. Okay, and this last two real quick technical questions, Jim, is on your architecture, is it centralized or distributed split? Meaning, are the splitters located in the field? Yes. Okay, and then the, the last question is, how deep do you build redundancy? All of our systems have redundancies built in, but obviously we don't have it down to the curve. Um, really, our system is based on two, um, 288 count fiber rings. Um, we have about uh, 16 nodes on that, and the redundancy goes down to down to those um, down to those what we used to call super nodes, basically huts stacked with our equipment. Well, hey, Tim, uh, we're out of town. Uh, Bento, I always love hearing about um, the details of your economic impact studies, and you know, it's no surprise that I mean, I drive through Chattanooga all the time and what an amazing city, you know, based on the leadership of EPB and others that have brought fiber to that community. So thank you guys both for um, all your leadership and being you know, one of the first to bring fiber broadband to your community. Um, I want to hope everybody joins us next Wednesday for Fiber for Breakfast. We're going to be discussing two 10 gig or not to 10 gig. No longer a question with combo pond. You'll hear from Mike Sardina of Armstrong and Greg Lumen of Atran. So we we'll look forward to seeing you guys next Wednesday and thanks everybody for attending today.